0: For the rest of us, we're looking this morning at Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would uh, come and open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you would give us tender hearts. Uh, Much of what you have to say today might be considered uh, hard teaching. And I pray that it uh, would not so much be hard as much as it would be uh, an encouragement to, to live out to the gospel. I pray for myself. I pray that you be in my head and in my thinking, in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And amen. You know, this morning is the kind of... Um, it's kind of sermon I I would call Father Mapple sermon, if you've read Moby Dick, which I'm sure all of you have. I can tell by the looks on your faces. Um, it's kind of text that, that I think I've got to stand up and preach it, and before I stand up and preach it, I go back and read the sermon by Herman and Moby Dick, and I'll tell you what that means at the end today. You know, in June we moved, and one of the good things about being a pastor is that a lot of times people are very willing to help you, and, you know, people come out in droves and they get you moved in about four hours. Um, the, the difficulty sometimes, this, is, this isn't a complaint by any stretch of the imagination, is that people can sometimes be, get a little overzealous. So, for example, I still can't find some of my clothes. <laughs> That's fine because I don't, I'm not that snazzy a dresser anyway. Um, and I mean, three weeks ago or so, I was in my wood shop and I was trying to get things put away. Things still aren't put away as much as they ought to be. And I pulled out a, a bucket of old towels and I started rooting through it to see if there's anything I wanted to keep. And I found this book at the bottom of the bucket. This book is my journal from 1993. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder what I was like in 1993. And, and you know, one of the first things I turned to was um, we just found out that we're pregnant, or, or actually been a few—we were a few months into it. And one of the things I wrote was, um, you know, I know Judy doesn't really think I'm that into the, the into this baby thing because I hate going to showers, but I'm really excited. Much of what I had to say, though, had to do with the gospel. Much of what I had to say. Was What did it mean? And grappling with what it meant to to help other people come to know Jesus. One of the things that sort of broke me is is this passage I'll read to you. It says that uh, what the the denomination I was in calls church planting seems to be more like, quote, church pirating. As we steal members from other denominations or lure people away from the world with big programs and entertainment, that doesn't seem like a biblical model. As I read my vision for ministries becoming clear, thanks be to the Spirit of God. Remember, I was just getting ready to go into seminary. If I become a preacher of the gospel, it must be to those who haven't heard or had a real chance at following Christ. Every page is something like that. You know, I read that and just started weeping. Because the first thing that came to my mind was this. Tommy, when did you become the crotchety old church guy? When did you become the guy who doesn't think about that at all? What you think about is the next meeting with the person who has a problem with you. What you do is you spend all of your time trying to grapple with what the issues are and you really spend almost no time thinking about people who don't know Jesus. That what makes my life easier is if I make people in church happy. That's what I thought. And I was extremely convicted. And so I have these thoughts and I'm just grappling with this and then a week or two later I go in my office and, you know, it's sort of like, well, what what are we going to study this week to preach? And it's the letter to the Ephesian church. And I guess the good thing is, this morning, I imagine some of my pathos is going to become some of your pathos. And the interesting thing is, this weekend we had a great session retreat. And one of the things I talked to the elders about is I said, you know, I've got to preach this passage tomorrow about the letter to the Ephesian church. And I said, I'm trying to find some way to soften it trying to find some way to take the rough edges off of it. And so whatever you think this morning, know that there's been a lot of prayer (laughs) and a lot of uh, effort gone into making it a little bit softer. But the problem is, it's hard making something soft that Jesus has made hard. It's hard making something soft that Jesus has made hard. And you'll notice the title, First Prayers, Ephesus, Part of that is just sort of a play on words. The, the Ephesian church was most definitely a Presbyterian church. That's true. If you look in Acts chapter 19 and 20, they appointed elders, and they were run by elders. And an elder-run church is, by definition, Presbyterian. And it was the first church in Ephesus. So it was a Presbyterian church that was the first church, and it, so, therefore, it was First Pres Ephesus. Now, the interesting thing is it's a play on words on one hand. On the other hand, it's a lot like First Pres it's a lot like first prayers everywhere So with all that said, why don't we, why don't we sort of jump in And there's, there's no other thing to do but, but jump in, I guess And if you remember, before we get into anything, what the purpose of this book of Revelation was about You know, if you watch television, preachers, you might think the purpose of Revelation is one thing if you listen to, to one tradition, you might think it's one thing, you listen to someone else. At the end of the day, if you remember, my goal is to help us understand the book of Revelation, not from a particular point of view with regard to whether it's about the future or the past or something, but basically, to the purpose of the book is simply that the whole purpose at the end of the day is for John to communicate to us that Jesus has won that in, in this victory over sin and death and the renewal of all and redemption of all creation, that Jesus has done it. At the cross, it was completely finished. There's no more work for him to accomplish. On the other hand, that what the book of Revelation teaches us is that Jesus is winning right now. That we look around us, and what we often see is it looks like everything is is horrible. right? We look at politics seem horrible, the Middle East seems to be going crazy, all these things, but somehow in the midst of everything that looks hard, Jesus is actually Winning, And if that's not enough, in the future we can have good hope that he will win. That he will come back and clean up everything and wipe every tear from every eye and and heal every wound. And eventually all of us that trust him will dwell in his presence forever. So he has won, he is winning, and he will win. And also if you remember basically how the letter is structured, it's it's a hybrid. In, In other words, it's not just a letter. It's an apocalypse, which is an unveiling of something. It's a prophecy, which is trying to move us morally some way or the other. It's trying to get us to repent or to have faith or something at different portions in the book. But the overarching thing that the book of Revelation is, is it's a letter. The whole thing is a letter. It opens in verse 4 of chapter 1 with to the seven churches that are in Asia, and it ends with grace be to you all. So the whole thing, in one sense or another, is meant to be a letter. And what a letter does is apply the personal work of Jesus to our lives. So, with that said, within this bigger letter, there are actually seven letters. At least that's how the book begins, with seven letters. And let me give you a little bit of general info about the seven letters. You know, again, depending on your perspective, you think the letters to the seven churches mean this or they mean that or they're just allegories for something else. And a a plain reading of the text and and a plain reading of history says, among other things, that these were real historical congregations. They existed. So that's one thing. The second thing that we need to keep in mind is that while they're real historical congregations, that they also represented all congregations. We're going to see as we work through these letters that while a letter may open by saying, to the church at Ephesus, it ends by saying, hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches, plural. In other words, that every church it appears in the book of Revelation was supposed to be reading every other church's mail. male. And if there's something that was written to Ephesus that you needed to take heed of, you should take heed of it. And remember, there's the, the, the seven of the churches, and seven is a complete number. Most people think that the, the reason for the fact that there's seven churches is it represents the church universal. It's a complete number. It's the complete church. And really, a lot of scholars have pointed out that any church, any problems that tend to come up in any given church, if you can't find them in the book of Revelation, especially in these seven letters, you probably you're not looking hard enough. In other words, most things that people deal with in church are found in these seven letters. So what else do we have? There's a particular structure. This, these seven letters, each of them, on one hand, they're a combination of Jewish prophetic oracle. On the other hand, they sound like a Roman edict. In other words, a, a Jewish prophetic oracle is, is something that would start or end with, thus saith the Lord that God himself is speaking. And in each of these letters, we, they conclude with, hear what the Spirit says to the seven churches, he who has an ear. So on one hand, they're part oracle. On the other hand, they sound almost exactly like a Roman edict. And by that, apparently in the Roman Empire, you know there would be different governors of different regions. And if a governor wanted to make a point to a region, he would send a letter maybe to a particular town, and it would begin with, I know the deeds you have done. And he would praise them if there was anything praiseworthy. And he would admonish them if there was anything that was worthy of an admonishment. And then he would say, if you don't get squared away, this is going to happen. Or if you do get squared away, a reward will happen. In other words, there is praise, there is admonishment, and then there is either a threat of judgment or a promise of reward. And that's how each, all these letters have that form. And part of that, you know, people speculate. I think it's just, a, a, if you're familiar, John is probably, or the spirit through John is just contextualizing these letters. In other words, all the people at these churches would have understand what an edict is. They would have come from Curio Caesar, or Kyrios whatever they got war for governor is, the Lord Caesar. Well, this is an edict, but it comes from the Lord Christ. And so it starts with, I know, there's praise, and then there's admonishment, and then there is promise of reward or promise of judgment. We'll see when we get there. So what are the different categories of letters, of of the seven letters? Basically, the church is number one and church is number seven. The church that opens the letter and the church that closes the letter are in what I'm going to call the danger zone. In, In other words, Jesus literally threatens these churches with taking them out of existence. Right? You remember when I was a kid, my stepfather he always used to say, you know, I brought you into this world. I can take you out. And that's sort of what Jesus is saying to churches one and seven. That the problems in churches number one and seven are so bad that Jesus says, if you do not repent, if you do not get squared away, I'm going to, to, to remove you. That's how bad it is. I'm going to call that the danger zone. You might think that's an understatement once we get there, but that's what I'm calling it for now. Churches 2 through 6 are faithful, relatively speaking. In other words, they're, they're faithful, or churches 2 and 6. They're faithful, and basically the letters are saying, keep on trucking, keep being faithful, keep enduring persecution, keep trusting Jesus in the midst of all this. So there's mostly encouragement in letters 2 and 6. And in the middle churches, 3, 4, and 5, I'm just going to call them a mixed bag. They do some things well, they do some things not so well, but they're not so bad that Jesus is threatening to take them out, but they are bad enough for him to notice and say, you need to probably work on this or that. And if you're, you know, if you're a scholar, you'll notice that one and seven would start here, if you will, and then two and six are parallel to each other, and then three, four, and five would make a point of a triangle. Just for trivia's sake, that's what uh, they call that a chiastic structure in biblical literature. It's poetic sorta. Yeah, that was free. All right. What's a common thread in all of the letters? See, remember, if we're looking at at these letters through the lens of the gospel, through the lens of the personal work of Jesus, are we going to find a common thread in in these letters? Or is it just admonishment to one, admonishment to another, admonishment to to this church or that church? And there is a common thread in all of them, and we're going to show you that throughout the thing. But the common thread is this, is that all the letters deal generally with the issue of witnessing for Christ in the midst of a pagan culture. That's the common thread. Which makes complete sense. If Jesus is going to talk to the church, the, what, it, what it is the, the end of the church? Or the, 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 the teleos, the, the final place where the churches should be going? It's to, to witness to the pagan culture. In fact, if you look at the, the, the EPC or the Evangelical Churches uh, Presbyterian Church's Book of Order, when it describes the church, it says the primary purpose of the church is the evangelization of the of the lost not good deeds not caring for the poor not any of that stuff that all that stuff is important but that's not the primary duty and so if that's the primary duty each of these churches is failing at it somehow or each of these churches needs a little work on it and so that's basically the common thread that you see so the Question is, what about this church? What about the church of Ephesus? And to understand the church at Ephesus, you got to understand also the city of Ephesus, and it's pretty fascinating. Basically, the city of Ephesus, among other things, would have been the first on the mail route for the Apostle John. Remember, he was uh, on the island of Patmos, and if he sent a letter east, the place it would have landed first would be in the city of Ephesus, and part of that would be because it was a port city. It was also the, first, the fourth largest city in the Roman Empire. Not just Asia Minor, but in the whole Roman Empire. The largest city in the Roman Empire, of course, would have been Rome. The second largest city would have been Alexandria. Third would have been Antioch of Syria. And fourth would have been the city of Ephesus. That makes it pretty important. There's more things that make it important, though. For one, it was a huge financial center, apparently. Apparently. That people would come there to trade currency and trade jewels and things like that, and what it would do because of that is it would draw people from all around the known world and because it was a, it was a seaport a very a very bustling seaport that people would come so it was a very diverse place culturally speaking, but it was always also a very wealthy place. What else do we know about it um, it was a, It was a, one of the premier religious centers of the ancient near East in fact. Uh, Ephesus was home to one of the seventh wonders of the world. Uh, my wife counseled me, I think wisely not to show you a picture. Um, the temple to the goddess Artemis, um, or the Romans would call her Diana, was o- over 100,000 square feet. You know how big that is? It's huge. There was a huge statue of the goddess Diana, and I don't know any nice way to say it, but it was completely covered with breasts. And there were temple prostitutes there who were working 24-7. And it was a big religious center, and it made a lot of money. We'll find out a little bit later that the Apostle Paul was driven from that city because his preaching of the gospel was affecting the, the finances of those who would sell stuff for the temple. Along with that, it was a huge political center. Remember the emperor Domitian who, who persecuted Christians starting in the, about A.D. 92? He, was, he decided to make Ephesus, I believe it was called a ward city, or a warden city. In other words, he put his temple, the temple to Domitian, if you're going to worship the emperor, he put his temple in Ephesus. That's how important Ephesus was to him, to the Roman Empire. So if people wanted to worship the emperor, they wanted to make a trip to see, to see his stuff, his thing was, I don't know if I remember, It's about a third as big as the Temple of Diana. But it's pretty big. So it was a financial center, it was a religious center, it was a political center, and in the middle of all this mayhem started one of the most influential churches in the history of Christianity. It was, it was like unto uh, Manhattan or Chicago or something like that, which leads us to the church. What was the church like in Ephesus? Well, it had some pretty interesting characters, or some pretty important characters. If you remember the Apostle Paul, during a missionary journey, stopped in there with also Priscilla and Aquila. So he basically got the church started, left it with Priscilla and Aquila for a while, and they were the ones who organized it, arranged it, and, and shepherded people. And eventually, Paul came back. He spent two and a half years in Ephesus. It's the longest he spent anywhere. And it, he was driven from Ephesus because of the, the silversmiths and things. And when he left, he turned the church over to this young guy named Timothy. And Timothy pastored the church for quite a while, until right around the turn of the first century, Timothy is written in the church tradition that he was murdered by the Romans. And when Timothy was murdered by the Romans, they, they brought in an older guy. And I mean that. Uh, the Apostle John came in. Well, it's pretty typical when a, when a young pastor retires or is murdered uh, by the Romans that you bring in a, an interim for a while. And John came in. And so the Apostle John came to be basically the bishop or the pastor at this church in Ephesus. And just another, just for trivia's sake, but I found it very interesting. They have one more important member of this church. One more member. Remember when Jesus was on the cross? What he said to John? He said, Take care of my mother. That Mary, Jesus' mother, was a member of the church in Ephesus. If John was there. And church tradition says that she was. So imagine going to church with Mary. Like imagine Christmas Eve service with Mary. (laughs) She's watching the kids up there and everything. And she looks over and she says, nothing like that. Trust me. No cute kids singing. (laughs) Certainly no candles. None of that stuff. But anyhow, it's just interesting. That was an important church. Between the Apostle Paul, Priscilla Iniquil. Between uh, Timothy... John and Mary, it had some important people there, but even more than that, if you've ever read the New Testament, at least these books are associated with the city of Ephesus, and I'm sure if I miss some that you'll let me know, the book of Ephesians, 1st and 2nd Timothy, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the Gospel of John, right, the book of Ephesians we know, because it says it right on the letter, 1st and 2nd Timothy were written to Timothy while he was pastoring in Ephesus, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John were written probably to churches in Asia Minor, which would include Ephesus, but also probably from Ephesus. And then, of course, the Gospel of John. Most people believe it was written from Ephesus by John. And so because of that, it, it became the center of Christianity. In other words, Christianity, it started in Jerusalem... And then eventually moved to Antioch, and then to Ephesus, and then ultimately to Rome. And if you're an evangelical, I think the Colorado Springs would be the next uh, center. But um, that was a joke as well. So that's the the, the church. It was an uh, incredibly important church and so that makes sense that the first letter that would go would be would go to this particular church it was the most important church in in the time that it existed but also just historically geographically personnel wise and everything else so the three points we're going to look at this morning three things and what are those three things the first is what I'm going to call a compliment. Jesus compliments them, or maybe a, a more a better word would be commends them. I commend you for this. The second word I'm going to say is you're going to see a complaint. And Remember where I said I was going to try and soften things up? That's actually the soft version. You'll see. And then number three would be a challenge to change. So what do we have? We have a compliment, a complaint, and a challenge to change. And let's look first at the compliment. Verses 2, 1 through 3, and 5. The question here is, what are they doing right? Is the church at Ephesus doing anything right? Is there, is there anything commendable which they're doing? And the answer is yes. And so let's look at that real quickly. Before we do that, I need to point out to you too, what happens in verse 1. Notice when you read this, I'll read it from my Bible. It says, To the angel in the church of Ephesus write the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. The key here is the word lampstands. And what am I getting at here? When you Remember last week we looked at the introduction, to, to we looked at John's vision that he had of Jesus, and it opened up by saying, I turned around and I saw him who walked in the midst of the golden lampstands, and I saw one who had on a long robe and a golden sash and a sword came out of his mouth. Each one of the seven letters begins with some part of the vision we saw last week. In other words, t- today's letter begins with the vision of Jesus in the middle of the lampstands. And each, each letter begins with part of that vision, and that the part of that vision is actually the key to understanding the letter. So in other words, when you read this, and it says, The words of him who stands with the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, what that tells you is that something that's going on with the church at Ephesus has to do with the lampstand. Or if it's later on where it talks about, you know, the the sword coming out of the mouth. Whatever the problem is, it was addressed in the introduction. And each church gets part of it. And so the problem in Ephesus is going to have something to do with the lampstand. And if you remember what the purpose of the lampstand was. The original lampstand was made to be in the temple. And it wasn't the light itself, but it only bore the light. And that light stood for the presence of God. And then last week we saw that the churches, are seven lampstands. Now the seven churches are the seven lampstands. That the churches now are to be the ones who bear the light of God. And so the church at Ephesus, part of their problem, must be with however they're bearing the light or not bearing the light. And that leads us to the first part. Verses 2 through 3. Let me read that to you. Verse two says, Jesus says, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Verse six, he says, yet you you have this, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So what is he praising them for? Or for what is he praising them? Well, the first thing he says, I know your works and your toil. And so the first thing he praises them for is, these, these are John Stott's summary, by the way. He's, he basically praises them for their energetic service, their works and their toil. That has to do with, with work that is just taken on and brought to completion. And he says, I know your works and your service. In other words, you guys are a, an incredibly diligent, hardworking church. You have more programs than you could shake a stick at. And every one of the programs, you do perfectly. Or you, t- you take it to its logical end. Or you man it by volunteers so you don't have to pay for staff. Whatever it is, whatever you, the way you think that programs ought to be done or the way that you think ministry ought to be done, you are doing it. And you're diligent in your service. Okay. What else does he say? He says, you're also patient in your suffering. Did you catch that? He says, your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those are evil. And he says in verse 3, I know you're enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake. In other words, he basically is saying, I know it's hard for you. It would be easy because remember if we talked about what was going on at the time that the emperor was sort of giving them pressure and the, the secular society was giving them pressure and the Jewish leadership was giving them pressure all to cave and apparently they were bearing up under it and they weren't caving they were still remaining a church they stood firm on the word of God and they bore up under it and Jesus praises them for that he says I know your works all the things you're doing great the fact that you endure suffering patiently Great. What else? They're orthodox in faith. They're orthodox. I mean, he says, and at the end of verse 2, he says, you've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. And he says, you hate the work of the Nicolaitans. We'll talk about that in a few sermons from now, which I also hate. That this church not only is diligent in their service, not only do they do, they do the kinds of things that church people are supposed to do, not only are they, do they remain solid in the midst of a changing culture, but they're also Orthodox. That's pretty big. That they believe the right things. That they're not going to, to, to cave in. They're not going to give any way when it comes to the gospel. So much so that apparently some people had come into the church that were false teachers and they listened to them and could discern whether they were true or false, what they had to say according to the, to, the, to the Bible. And they got rid of them. They kicked him out. And Jesus said, that's big. That's good. You guys are orthodox in your faith. And he says, you hate the works of the Nicolaitans? Notice he didn't say, I hate the Nicolaitans. He said, you hate their works? He says, I hate them too. Good for you. Now you read, the, and that, you know what that reminds me of? That reminds me of our church. You know, our church has more volunteers than any church I've ever been at. I know people always say, oh, we need more volunteers. Our church has more volunteer hours than any church I've ever seen. And we have programs, woo, we have programs. A lot of them have gone away since I've gotten here. I know some of you are upset with that, but we'll talk about that in a minute. Um, But if you want something done, start a program. And if you want the the program to go, get a bunch of volunteers and get people busy. Because the busier you are, the more Jesus is happy. That's what it feels like sometimes. But not only that, we're patient and suffering. A lot of us have suffered in this church, and a lot of us have been a a tremendous witness to the rest of the congregation and even the world because of the patient suffering that we have endured. Whether it be with illness, with our health, with things that have happened in our lives, that's a good thing. Being diligent and volunteering and stuff, that's a good thing too. So is patient and suffering. And I hope we're orthodox in our faith. I think we are. At least according to the Westminster larger and shorter catechisms and the standards of this church. As long as you can stand up and say, I believe that, you're good to go, right? So what could be wrong? I mean, in some sense, if you had a church that was energetic in service, patient in suffering, and orthodox in faith, at some level, that's every pastor's dream. Because how could there be any problems in a church like that? Apparently, in the church in Ephesus, there's one huge problem. If you stop this letter right here, and it was just, pray. if Jesus just stopped the praise right there, we would have all probably read it and said, Phew, that's beautiful, that's just how we are. Wouldn't you think that? However, something there's something right after this, and you know, I always think it's an important word. It's the word but. It's the word but. Remember, I, I always tell you the word but is one of the most important words in the Bible. And it's always because, usually it's in the context of you were sinners, but... God has given Jesus for our sins, this is the exact opposite. Things are going pretty well. Your church looks pretty healthy, but... And that's where Jesus makes a complaint. That's the nicest way I could say what Jesus is doing here. It's not inaccurate. It's just the nicest way because what does Jesus actually say here? He says, I have this against you. If if the book of Revelation didn't exist, and you just went off the information you have, if you're a Christian, and I came to you and said, could you imagine Jesus ever saying anything like this? We expect him to say words of grace. We expect him to touch the leper. We expect him to say, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. He says that but what you almost never hear people focusing on is this by the way that's more than a complaint what does it mean for jesus to say to any church first pres ephesus or first pres e- first epc i have this against you that should open your eyes when Jesus says that. We want to hear all the time when he says, you know, I have, I'm for you. Come unto me. But what we need to hear this morning is what Jesus says when he says, I have this against you. And what does he have against the church in Ephesus? And any other church that has their same problem, it's this. He says that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. That's the English Standard Version. I think that's actually the best translation Another version, the message says you've walked away from your first love. The one most people are familiar with, if you're familiar with church, is that you've left your first love. So there's there's this huge distinction drawn between I know all the works that you do. I know all the things that you've suffered. I even know how much you care about the Bible and Bible study and doctrine. But... I have something against you that is so bad, it threatens the very existence of your church. And what is that thing? Well, he tells us that you have left your first love. And the question, of course, is what does he mean by first love? A lot of different commentators talk about it. Some people think what he's talking about is the the church's love for each other. That Maybe there's conflict in the church, and at the beginning, they started the church, which happens. You know, you start a new church, and everything's hunky-dory, and everyone's on the same page, and everyone loves one another, and they're moving forward. And then after, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, everyone's sort of not in agreement anymore. That would never happen here. But in Ephesus, it might have. But probably not. A lot of other commentators say, well, really, all it talks, he's talking about it is a love for Jesus, you used to love me, now you don't. You used to be zealous for the gospel, now you're a crotchety church guy. Or crotchety church woman. You don't love Jesus anymore. That's, that's probably not what he's talking about either, by the way. Now what he's talking about is directly related to your love for Jesus. Because if you don't have love for Jesus, you won't have the next, what he's really talking about. And if you do have love for Jesus, you will have what he's talking about. So the question, when I pop the next slide for you, is going to be, do I really love Jesus, and how does it work itself out in my life? That's a hard saying, I know. Really, what he's talking about is their love for the lost. Remember how the, the, the book opened? Remember the problem with the Ephesian church? There was some kind of issue with their lampstand. You don't get the lampstand squared away. I'm going to take away the lampstand, the thing that is made to bear light. And he doesn't say when he tells them what to do, how to to repent of it. He doesn't say start loving Jesus again, change your emotion. He tells them to do do the same things they used to do in the beginning. So it's just interesting to me when you think about love for the lost being the primary thing that Jesus is upset with here. And then you think about all the things that happen in church. It really is amazing if you think about it. That the primary thing that Jesus is willing to take this church out, if they don't get squared away, is the thing in my experience most churches really at the end of the day don't spend any time thinking about. Not really. I mean, I, I, I have, I have, I've had people complain since I've been here about any number of things. But almost no one has ever complained about why aren't we seeing more people come to know Jesus? It's always about the music, or it's about the budget, or it's about something else. You know what Jesus' complaint is about? Why aren't you living out the gospel? And Living out the gospel always entails taking the gospel to other people. I mean, I've heard... I I, I didn't go to any meetings. I I never... I miss as many as I can. But, you know, oftentimes on the course of the year, people say, "What, what are the elders going to do to grow this congregation? Now, the irony of that is, is when you do things to grow a congregation, that causes change, and then people actually leave because they don't like the change. But in spite of that, I told our session yesterday, we were talking about growing the congregation And I told them, I said, if at the end of two years from now, for example, we had 200 more people sitting in our pews and all of them had just come from other churches, we will have failed. Most churches, when they think of what it means to bear witness in the world, think of it in terms of how can we make our church attractive for other Christians to come to our church and and give us their tithe as opposed to someplace else. What Jesus is talking about here is our witness in the world. That there are tens of thousands of people within two or three miles of this church that do not know Jesus and what are you, First EPC, doing about it? And by the way, I'm not saying this to scold you. I'm saying, so so you can ask yourself the same question that I ask myself. When did I stop caring? When did I start being crotchety old church guy? When did I just, all I was concerned about was whether or not we were going to come in under budget. Because you know what, when I, at the end of the age, when I stand before Jesus, I very well doubt to you that He's going to say, "Tommy, in the year 2012, what was your budget, and were you within two, three, four, or five thousand dollars of that?" I'll say, "Well, we came in under, but we didn't spend as much." I don't think that's what he wants to hear. Ask yourself these questions. When was the last time you prayed for your friends, your neighbors or your family? These are ways to diagnose whether, you, 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 whether you, you're, you're on board with Jesus' the mission or not. I'm going to guess it's not very much. Because we get the prayer sheets every week. And only rarely does anyone write on there, please pray for my friend, husband, mother, someone to come to know Jesus. There are a couple of people that write it every single week. And you know what? You, if you're doing it, you could probably stop because I pray for you anyway that's what you want you want people praying and so are you, do you even pray for people to come to know Jesus when's the last time you did that you know Spurgeon one time people asked him how, how come your church has grown so much his church went from a very small church to about 10,000 he said my people pray for conversions do you pray for conversions in our church for your friends neighbors let me ask you this when is the last time you invited someone to church I can only answer it for myself But when is the last time People say What are we going to do To grow the congregation Well the only way A congregation grows Is if people come And the only way they come Is usually if they're invited Let me ask you another way When's the last time You invited someone to anything And by the way These are questions The only way I knew These questions Is because they're the questions I'd ask myself I spend the good bit of my waking hours either it was somewhere between two blocks away from here and here, back and forth. It's like a virtual private network that Tommy Allen lives in. I come here, I make it into the office without contacting any unbelieving people. I work on my sermon because if I have a good sermon, people will be happy with me. And then I go back here through the virtual private network to get to my house. Sleep, wake up, lather, rinse, repeat. I've never fixed my garage door opener, so I can't avoid my neighbors that way. But I do, trust me. The question is, when do you invite it to anything? Or are you so busy with church programs that you don't have time? You see, if, if, if reaching people for Jesus is important, that almost necessarily means a lot of the programs in the church need to just go. They need to be gone. Everything that we add in the church means that's time that someone is not able to spend with their unbelieving friend or neighbor. So the next time you propose a program, think about that. I'm not saying they're all bad, or you should never do that, but think about it. Finally, when's the last time you sacrificed time, energy, or resources so that someone could could come to know Jesus? What's our giving like to missions? What's our giving like to benevolence? This is the kind of thing which, by the way, one of the reasons that I'm constantly talking about the fact that we need to get rid of the mortgage that this church has because all the money that goes to the mortgage and interest and everything else should be going to the kingdom of God it should be going to missions it should be going to feeding the poor it should be going to all these different things when's the last time? those are hard questions, aren't they? well, Jesus doesn't leave us there he, he, he gives us not necessarily a way out but he gives us something to do about it he gives us a challenge to change and what is that challenge? what does he expect from us? basically three things The first thing he says in verse 5, he says, Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. You know what's interesting to me? one, One of the things I love about our church is the diversity of age. And one of the things I love doing is when someone who is older than me, by a few decades, regales me with tales of their youth. When I go to memorial service, I love the part where they show, you know, they show the, the, the guy who's passed away and he's standing beside a bomber in World War II. Right? The, the, you, you, all you know is the crumpled old man. And yet you look and say, that guy at one point or another was a hero. And this church, 25 or 30 years ago, came out of a denomination that frankly's lampstand had probably gone out. And I love hearing the story of everything it took to leave. And all of the change and all of the risk... Where did those people go? Some of them are here, but a lot of them aren't here anymore. They're sitting around you. But what happened? John says, remember. Remember from where you're following. Remember back in those days when the gospel meant everything to you. What does he say next? He says, repent. And do the works you did at first. What it means to repent is basically to stop doing what you are doing and to turn 180 degrees and go in the right direction. So in other words, if if your life is defined by only talking to Christians and only uh, making sure that your Christian world is safe and secure and, and solid like you want it to be, you need to stop doing that maybe and turn your eyes outward. In other words, you need to be outwardly faced. I'm running out of time, otherwise I'd talk a lot more The last part of verse 5 says, If not, I will come and remove you and remove your what? Lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Now, when Jesus says something like that, you can either consider it a threat or you consider it a promise. But either way, it's an important thing to heed. He he says, "Here's here's what you're doing well, here's what you're not doing well, and here's what I expect from you in return to what I expect as far as repentance and he says if you don't do this I'll remove your lampstand and if you don't think that he's willing to remove a lampstand look at some of the denominations and churches that exist in our country right now they're just shells of what they used to be because they define themselves by politics or by something other than the gospel of Jesus finally verse 7 he says he who has an ear let him hear what the spirit says to the churches to the one who conquers I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The main thing I wanted to point out to you there is that this letter is also for all churches that have ears to hear. That it's not just for Ephesus. And then he says, to the one who conquers, what will I do? I will grant to eat of the tree of life. And I have to leave you with this, how does one conquer in the gospel? The way that you conquer, the way you have access to the tree of life in the, the Christian gospel at least, is you trust the fact that someone else has conquered on your behalf. Remember when John fell at the feet of Jesus dead, or as if he were dead, and Jesus says, Stop being afraid. Why? Because I'm the first and the last. I am alive. I was dead, and behold, I'm alive forevermore. That is the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus in which we conquer. And to the extent that you've trusted that, you will be a conqueror. And because of that, you're granted access to the tree of life. And I wish I had another hour. Because the tree of life basically starts in Genesis, but it ends at the end of Revelation. Then the book of Revelation, because of sin, Adam and Eve were cast from the garden and said, you cannot have access to the tree of life. And in the book of Revelation, at the very end of the Bible, not only are we given access to the tree of life, but every tribe, tongue, and nations, it says the trees of the leaves of that tree come down for the healing of the nations. That we dwell in the presence of God. Think about that. Let us pray. Father, I pray that as we consider um, this hard teaching, it is a hard teaching, it's hard for me to teach, it's hard, I imagine, to hear, and I pray that you would grant us repentance. I pray that you grant us joyful hearts as we seek to see uh, your mission accomplished in the world, and that is uh, reaching people who do not know Jesus. And I pray for if there are people here today who don't know Jesus, that they would come to faith. In Christ's name, we pray these things. Amen and amen.